0: Please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is Acts chapter 21. We're continuing to make our way through this uh, book of the Bible. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 17 to 26 on page 930 in the Blue Pew Bible. This is Paul. Uh, As it's described, he's coming into Jerusalem. The author, Luke, describes The situation beginning in verse 17. Luke writes When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them, and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus, we all know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that you should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, And the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification should be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Here ends the reading. Let's pray once again. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would please send the Sovereign Spirit upon us, the same Spirit that moved Luke to write these words, the same Spirit that moved Paul and James and the elders to do what they do in this passage. Uh, We pray, gracious God, that same spirit would be powerfully at work among us, that you would please open our ears and our hearts and give us grace, Father, that we might hear your word, believe it, obey it, and rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I want to echo a few things Uh, David said in the introduction to our uh, service. Uh, He talked a little bit about uh, the upcoming General Assembly. Um, It's set to start one week from tomorrow. That's when the committees start meeting, not tomorrow, but a week from tomorrow in St. Louis. Uh, It's uh, a very interesting time. We didn't have one last year because of COVID, but we're having one this year as we have for the previous 48 years as PCA churches and mission organizations from all across the country and around the world gather together to pray, to share fellowship, and to take counsel. As David rightly said, there are a number of very, very significant issues in front of the uh, assembly, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it all goes. Um, Each PCA church is entitled to send their teaching elders and their, uh, two of their ruling elders to serve as commissions, commissioners. And I'm very grateful and very excited that MetroCrest is sending uh, two commissioners, uh, James Woods and Larry Perry, both ruling elders in our congregation, who will be with me representing MetroCrest in St. Louis. Uh, it does promise to be uh, more than a little controversial. I think maybe this year as much as ever before, Uh, There are a number of things already on the docket that we know we will be discussing, and one of them is something called the Ad Interim Committee Report on Human Sexuality. And it's a very long, very detailed, very involved report. You can actually read it online. Just go to uh, PCAGA.org, and you can find a copy of the report if you'd like to read through it. It's the PCA's effort to sort of enter into this maelstrom of of controversy that we are experiencing in our culture, in our society, in our country around the whole issue of human sexuality. Everything from homosexuality to um, different aspects of uh, sexual ethics uh, to transgenderism and all these different topics of discussion that we've all become far more acquainted with than I ever dreamed we would. Uh, That's life in 2021 USA and the PCA is Stepping out into the middle of this discussion with uh, this ad interim report, and I encourage you to take a look at it. If you scan the list of overtures, an overture is a little bit like a bill that's introduced in Congress. Well, at General Assembly, they're introducing overtures, and there are about 48 overtures, including several on in sexuality and aspects of racism, which is another hot button topic in our society. We've all heard those debates. We've all participated in those debates, maybe more than we want to. Uh, Well, the PCA is sort of trying to engage these very important, very controversial topics. Well, all of this has been on my mind this week as I've been preparing to preach this morning on Acts chapter 21. And I think it's providential. Uh, that we're going to be thinking about this this morning. It'll sort of help us to be preparing for General Assembly and some of the challenges in front of us. I've, I've called this morning's sermon, The Problem of Theological Disagreement. Uh, uh, that title sort of fits into this little template I've been using through the latter part of this series, the problem of dot, dot, dot. We've done cultural conflict. We've done suffering leadership. Well, today we're going to do the problem of theological disagreement. And I want to begin by just underscoring what is absolutely, undeniably true, and that is the reality of theological disagreement. It's a problem, first of all, because it is a reality. And everything I just said about the General Assembly is sort of an example of that. It is an ongoing reality that even in the PCA, even in our beloved denomination, there is this ongoing struggle, this tug of war, this give and take, uh, this ongoing disagreement about issues of theology, morality, ethics, and all the things that are related to it. Well, that's kind of the setting for Acts chapter 21, verses 17 to 26. Not exactly the same. But I think what we will be able to do is, first of all, discern what was so important about that theological disagreement, most importantly. And also we'll, I think, learn some principles that we can use in our world today in the midst of the ongoing theological disagreements of our time. I think we will find a surprising amount of overlap. It's very interesting some of the things they were debating and First century Jerusalem, in this church council in Jerusalem that is described here, we're still debating today different ways of looking at it, different aspects of the same question that we are still, two millennia later, wrestling with. But let's think for a moment about this reality of theological disagreement. It's described in verses 17 to 19. Look again at the passage on page 930. Luke is writing, he says, When we had come to Jerusalem, this is at the end of a long travelogue. All of chapter 21 describes their making their way to this point. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Um, I love that once again we see yet more evidence that the apostolic church was Presbyterian because the setting for this passage is a gathering of presbyters, elders, of whom James is singled out. He is there and all the elders there in Jerusalem were present. But of course they weren't there by themselves. Verse 17, the The really important guests, uh, the really important people were Paul and us. Who was us? Well, us was first of all Luke, who's writing this. It's interesting to follow the pronouns in in the story of the church in Acts. Uh, There are a lot of places where just it jumps out that it says we. What Luke is describing here in verse 17 is something he actually experienced. He was there. He witnessed it himself. He's not just describing something he had heard about. Luke was in the room, and that's significant because a few of the things we know about Luke underscore why it was important that he was there. He was a Gentile, very, very likely a Gentile, possibly a Hellenized Jew who had a Jewish background, but in any event he came from the Gentile world and he very likely was himself a Gentile. Uh, He's there in the room with Paul and he's not there by himself. Paul has brought with him on this travel log several Gentiles who have been converted to Christ. And so this Gentile delegation has made its way to the mother church in Jerusalem. And they're actually there with James, the brother of Jesus, and the elders of the mother church. All Jews. And here's Luke and these other Gentile or people with Gentile type backgrounds who are there in the room. And you see, the topic of discussion, the theological disagreement, had to do with them. It wasn't just a debate about them. They were the debate. They were the thing about which there was disagreement. Now, this is not the first time this topic has been brought up. If you flip back to Acts chapter 15, maybe you will remember this from last year. Uh, We've been doing this study of Acts for a very long time during COVID. Well, if you remember back several months, all the way back to last year, you'll remember that we went through Acts chapter 15. It's on page 923. The ESV editors have helpfully called it the Jerusalem Council. And it's the first General Assembly, if you will. It's the first gathering of the representatives of all the churches, not just the Presbyterian church, of course, but all the churches They're in Jerusalem. They were gathered together, and they were discussing a theological disagreement. And guess what the theological disagreement was? Well, let's look. Chapter 15, verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's a huge statement. Unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved, Gentile. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, it flew in the face of Paul's whole mission to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the presbyters about this question. So, being on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the presbyters, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and To order them, to order them, to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. turns out the First General Assembly had to do primarily with a theological disagreement. And it was a very important theological disagreement. It wasn't some sort of vague abstraction. It had to do with the life of the church and the ministry and mission of the church. And so Acts 15 verses 1 to 6 describes the outline of the event, the discussion. Skip down to verse 12. Said Paul has been speaking. Peter has been speaking. Verse 12. All the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James, the same James apparently that we read about in Acts 21, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Verse 14, Simeon. I love that he calls him Simeon because he knew Peter back in the day, right? Simeon, Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, verse 16, quoting from Amos, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnants of mankind, May seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Finally, verse 19 through 21. Therefore, says James, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them. To abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Far from ancient generations, for from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Unquote. Flip back to chapter twenty-one what we actually discover is that the Second General Assembly has the exact same theological disagreement at its heart. And what in chapter 15 was in a sense theoretical, because it was just Paul and Barnabas, both men with Jewish backgrounds, they were there talking about what they'd seen, right? That was Acts chapter 15. Here in Acts chapter 21... Paul has brought these people with him. They're actually there in the room. There's Luke, the secretary who's been keeping notes. Here are the the people who have responded to the gospel to the Gentiles. They're standing there with Paul. So the theological disagreement moves from, in a sense, something theoretical that they're hearing about to a theological disagreement that they're actually seeing. They can talk to these people. Apparently a rumor is spread that Paul's going to take them into the temple and violate all these different Jewish regulations. And the Jewish authorities, especially the, the Pharisees, are all stirred up. It seems like the Pharisees were generally always stirred up about something. And so they're all stirred up. They're very angry, very upset. And in walks Paul with Luke and the party of Gentile converts to the gospel. So, we have the reality of theological disagreement. And of course, you don't have to uh, go back to first century Jerusalem to know that theological disagreement is a reality. It's a reality today. It's a reality in our day if you sort of Managed to pry apart all the different overtures and all the different reports. What we discover, interestingly, is that the Presbyterian Church in America and all the churches in America and all the churches in the Western world and all the church around the world of every background and ethnicity, we're all wrestling today with disagreements ongoing disagreements and one of the interesting things one of the really striking things to me is how in 2021 the things that we disagree about have echoes with what they were disagreeing about in the first century at the very beginning of the church echoes of the same ongoing disagreements race and sex 2000 years later and we're still debating some of the same things. Slightly different applications, different circumstances. The world has changed a lot in 2000 years, but in some ways it stayed the same. We're fixated and obsessed with a lot of the same things. We're obsessed with a lot of the same things that they were obsessed obsessed with in first century Jerusalem. So I hope I don't have to convince you that theological disagreement is a reality. I imagine, like me, you know it's real. The question is, what's the solution? What do we do about it? How do we resolve it? Of course, there's one answer, which is we just sort of stick our heads in the sand hope it will go away. Uh, That didn't work. When God's people stick their heads in the sand, the devil is free to do the stuff the devil wants to do. We can't stick our heads in the sand. We can't pretend as though it's not a problem. We can't just sort of wallpaper over it and pretend like we can avoid it. it doesn't happen that way. We live in a complex world that is constantly attacking the church and the, the battering rams of the world. We're very aware of the battering rams of the world that brings its agenda, its its goals, its confusion, its darkness, and ultimately its suicidal self-hatred. just is battering against the church. So what is the apostolic solution? Well, I want to suggest to you that there there was at this second General Assembly sort of a a, a kind of template. Now, it's an important template. Decision they make. So it's more than a template because it turns out the template is given to us in the context of a real decision, a real solution. The mother church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, and the elders with him, and Paul, the head of the mission, Gentile mission, and all these converts, they're all gathered together in the room. They're going over the same topics they discussed years earlier over in Acts chapter 15. And the solution boils down to two very important things. Again, it's the two same things that he discussed, that James discusses back in Acts 15. They're two important criteria. Not in order of importance, but really in terms of how they're experienced. And the two criteria are, first of all, mission, and second of all, Scripture. Scripture. And that is the criteria that James and the Apostolic Church will use to navigate this complex disagreement, this uniquely important complex disagreement that actually sets the course for the rest of not only the book of Acts, but the rest of the church and actually the rest of the history of the human race. This is the template that was used in this unique situation. And the the template, it turns out, is simply to go back to Acts 15. What they essentially do, putting it in parliamentary uh, language, is they reaffirm what they had already said. That's that's often what the church has to do. That's often what the church has to do. We, We simply reaffirm what we have always known in the face of the battering rams of the world. We reaffirm what we've always known. And so James basically quotes himself. He ba- basically quotes himself when he simply recounts to the gathered elders and these others, he simply recounts what the council of Jerusalem had already ruled in Acts chapter 15. He recounts it in, in a very simple language. He says, verse 25, As for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. He simply reminds them what they already know. Now that is uniquely important in the history of the church. Because the rest of the book of Acts is that lived out. And it's going to describe it in terms of more conversions, more people who are exposed to the gospel from the from every different ethnicity to every different social level, They're they're going to be exposed to the gospel. It's it's simply the the living out of what the church has already said, which is that Gentiles do not have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. Now, by that they meant you don't have to become culturally a Jew. You You don't have to follow what they have called the customs of Moses. So... They no longer can require particular cultural expressions, particular cultural ways of doing things. Those things which have a place in the history of the Jewish people and are very dear to people who have that ethnicity, those things things don't apply in the same way among the Gentiles. So a Gentile believer does not have to be circumcised when they become a Christian. A Gentile believer does not have to adopt all the aspects of the Jewish dietary laws. Those cultural expressions of Jewishness no longer apply in the Gentile mission. That's been set aside. And that's very important. Because if, like me, you have a Gentile ancestry, if your family tree like mine goes back to, I don't know, some part of northern Europe where at the time this was written, they were worshipping trees and rocks like my ancestors were, then they were able to come to Christ without having to be brought into a culture and an expression of a culture that was foreign to them and did not apply to them. They didn't live in the same environment. They didn't have the same challenges. So to simply uh, force to command them, to do things that didn't apply to them made no sense, and the church ruled it was so, and you and I are sitting here today as a result because of this momentous decision that was reaffirmed in Acts chapter 21. Now there's a template here as well. We can also learn, we we can also apply this template... As we make decisions, as we engage the unique situation where we live. And the template is the same two things, mission and scripture. First of all, uh, mission. Look look again at verses uh, 19 in the first half of verse 20. After greeting them, Paul related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Mission, brothers and sisters, mission, Christian mission, is evidence of God's sovereign work. You will not concern yourself with truly preaching the gospel apart from the work of the sovereign spirit that draws you to want to do that. It's too hard. The world hates it. We are not drawn to it on our own. No, mission, Christ centered mission, is evidence of God's sovereign work. Christine, uh, Kathleen, uh, I've got to brag on you for just a moment, Kathleen Barclay. Y'all know, y'all, most of y'all know Kathleen. Some of you are getting to know Kathleen. Kathleen is one of the founding members of Metrocrest, along with a handful of the others of you who were here for 30 years. Uh, Kathleen's been a member of Metrocrest for a very long time. And when the elders and I were talking about sort of relaunching mission after COVID, uh, we all agreed that the person to do that was Kathleen Barclay. And she in a moment of poor judgment, agreed. (laughs) She consented to take this on. And i got to tell you, it is a wonder to behold. (laughs) It is a great joy because Kathleen, when she tackles a job, she really tackles it. And so she pulled together a group of others, wonderful, gifted, caring, deeply committed Christians. And they have been working for the past uh, six months Pulling together plans, pulling resources from Christ Church Carrollton, pulling resources from the very long, rich mission tradition at MetroCrest, pulling those things together, going through and talking to all these missionaries all around the world, tracking them down, sending them emails, communicating with them. Well, that is evidence of the work of the sovereign God. To care about that, to want to do that, to make that a priority. That's evidence of the work of the sovereign God. And when it comes to looking at theological disagreements, one of the things that we want to watch for is which one is drawing us to Christ centered mission. It may sound good, it may have Bible quotes. It may be dressed up in fancy religious uh, garments, but if it doesn't draw us to mission, if it doesn't draw us to reaching out like the apostolic church did, then it's not the way we should go. It's not the way we should go. And it was interesting, it was specifically cross-cultural mission. You know, the, the big topic these days is race and how do we deal with race. It is a very, very complicated issue. Very smart people, very well-educated people, very, very godly people wrestle with this. How do we engage in the 21st century on this topic that has bedeviled the church for 2,000 years? How do we do that? Well, I think we have to have patience. We have to listen to each other. We have to have great humility, like the apostolic church. Can you imagine... Here was James, the brother of Jesus. The elders who had the rich tradition of Judaism. The the teachings of Moses. Their ancestor. And in walks this group of Gentiles who'd been worshipping rocks and trees until recently. Who had all kinds of bad habits. Who ate weird food. They came into the church in Jerusalem. And I I love the way Luke describes it, verse 17. (laughs) The brothers received us gladly. That's the Holy Spirit. You see, on our own, we don't like people who are different from us. People who have different languages and eat different food and wear different clothes. On our own, we're suspicious of different, the other. That's just as true today as it was then. We're, we're, we're very suspicious. Now, we've learned better ways to hide it, but it's, it's a it's a human thing. We, we, we're suspicious. We don't like different all that much. Well, church then was learning that the Holy Spirit loves different. God loves different. He made different. He invented it. So, Revelation tells us that heaven is going to be full of people of every language, tribe, and nation. So, racists beware. Heaven is going to be a very anti-racist place. You may wind up worshipping for eternity next with someone from a race you don't own your own like. But don't worry. That's where the Holy Spirit does what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit tears those things down. The Holy Spirit teaches us and gives us Jesus' eyes and Jesus' love and he changes us to be more like Jesus. And it doesn't happen instantly. Paul himself had to learn a lot of these things. Peter, it's actually recorded how Peter learned these things. Simeon learned these things very slowly. He had to learn about the dietary laws and everything else. The church had to learn these things, and we're still learning these things. But mission is always an evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting, right through the book of Acts, we read over and over again how the Lord brought people to himself. And there are often numbers given. Back to Acts chapter 2, verse 41, um, Luke records a number. 3,000 people were converted in one day. You know, I, and I actually mentioned in our bulletin that we've had a wonderful increase in our attendance numbers. and You know, attendance numbers, like baptisms and conversions, those don't tell all the story, but they matter. You know why? Because every statistic represents people. It represents people. And so the fact that in the very first Pentecost, 3,000 people came to Christ, that matters so much that Luke wrote it down. And he underscored the fact that that was not a clever program of the church. That was God at work in His mission through the mission of the church, doing what He does, which is bring people to Jesus. And for some reason, He chooses to use us to do it. He could do divine skywriting, but for some reason, he, he delights in using his children. I mean, any dad knows about this. You know, as much as I love doing things, I love much more watching my kids do things. I love watching my children. The funny stories that the kids told about Dad often involve Dad bringing them into their work so. I forget if it was Rohan or Brucey, but somebody was about dad letting them hold the flashlight. And uh, <laughs> it's a funny story. You had to be there. Uh, but I tell you, as a dad, I know exactly what he means. It's a delight to a dad to see their kids doing stuff, do, especially doing the right stuff. Well, that's what mission is. Mission is the sovereign father who reigns over the universe working through us his kids he delights in it he prefers to do it that way maybe we can ask him in eternity but he delights in doing it that way he works through us so mission secondly scripture acts chapter 21 verse 20 second half it's it's interesting to note uh, they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. Now, when, when, uh, when these uh, elders use the word the law, what they're describing is not simply the Ten Commandments or just the, the, the law-like aspects of the Old Testament Scripture. What they actually mean is the Old Testament Scripture. That was the law and the prophets. That's, that was how they sort of summed up the teaching of the Old Testament. They sometimes simply called it Moses. So, so they will quote a prophet and say Moses. They're actually, they do that back in Acts 15. They quote a prophet and attribute it, in a sense, to Moses. Moses didn't write it, but Moses sort of is the figure who represents all the Old Testament scriptures. And that, brothers and sisters, is another infallible test that we can apply in theological disagreements. It is the Scriptures. And I don't mean... They see, the, the Pharisees could pull out bumper stickers. They probably had Pharisaical bumper stickers. They could pull out a verse here or pull out a verse there. They could sort of drape it over whatever nonsense they were teaching. And they could say, see, this is what Moses said. But Paul understands, and Jesus understood that Moses, properly understood, teaches the gospel. What what Moses was interested in teaching was not Pharisaical rule-keeping. Moses wanted to teach the law which forms the background, the essential Christ-confirming background of the Old Testament. You know we think the Old Testament says one thing and the New Testament says another thing and obviously in a sense they have different contexts and different authors but they say the same thing. They point towards Jesus and Jesus tells us so. Remember the resurrection story? Jesus actually opened Moses. said, see, Moses was telling you about me. So, a Christ-centered scripture will always form the ultimate test. Mission, this impulse to go out and share the gospel, and the scripture itself which points us to the gospel, those will be the criteria by which we can begin to unpack theological disagreements. It does not solve it instantly. What it actually does is it gives us the framework to discuss and pray and pray and discuss. And that's true at the General Assembly. It's true among Christians of every denomination. It's true here at MetroCrest. The criteria that we use to solve theological disagreements remains mission and the Scripture. That's what happens in Acts chapter 21. We're going to see the fruit of that. It's not what we might expect or wish, but we'll see the living out of that call. And we'll see the living out of that call here at MetroCrest as we seek to do these things. As we seek to live out our call in Christ.